Yeah. Okay, Marinelle, let's do it again. Right? But okay. with fashion. Hi, I'm Ruth. And I'm Marinella, and this is the Intersection of Things, the feminist podcast where we discuss internet rights from those angles that make your boss Johnny cringe. And this week, we're going to be talking about the Internet Freedom Festival. Hello, Ruth. How are you doing? I'm alright, Marinella. It's been a pretty intense week. You've been traveling a lot. Yeah, a lot of traveling. Going to Brussels tomorrow morning. Gotta leave the house earlier than is pleasant. Are you saving the link? Is that what you're, what you're doing? Yeah, I'm going to save the link. And also, you know, just the internet in general. You know, just tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, I'll uh, I'll get it sorted. Little bit of a background for the listeners. Ruth is working and has been working on this campaign for like, what, two years now? Or a wee bit longer. Yeah, a little bit longer. Wow. More than two years. And um, trying to keep the link tags away and the censorship machines away from the interwebs in Europe and really everywhere. Your little super queer is going to go to Brussels and, <laughs> and try to like convince people. <laughs> That's a bad idea. But anyways, no, I wanted to talk about um, this really awesome travel, the Internet Freedom Festival that happened where? Valencia, Spain? In Valencia. Valencia, España. So, what is the Internet Freedom Festival, Ruth? That's an interesting question. I mean, it's essentially a conference for people interested working around internet freedom. But I feel like it's different from other similar conferences like I've been to RightsCon and I've been to MozFest and they they're all kind of talking about those things about the infrastructure of the internet about digital rights about surveillance about free expression but there's something about the Internet Freedom Festival in Valencia that has a really like unique feeling it feels like more inclusive more welcoming more queer friendly more women friendly than anything else like there are much less likely to be all white male panels and the like the sessions are really much more hard-hitting much more like unafraid to talk about sexual harassment or talking about surveillance on queer dating apps and talking about Palestine and Israel like it feels like a safe space for Mm. a lot of those conversations that's interesting do you think it's only because of the themes that they tackle or is there anything in particular about the way the conference or the festival itself is conducted that kind of facilitates that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for a start, I like the way that they have like they have a mailing list and a newsletter that they send out throughout the year. So which is just like for people who are part of the Internet Freedom Festival community. Obviously, you can sign up and join it. But that has its own tone it has its tone in like the articles that it shares and that it always feels like it's sharing you things about those kind of projects, that kind of work. Things from, um, there's a project called Gender IT, which has articles about feminism and the internet and they share articles from that. And then... They also have a version of that in, in uh, Spanish and I think in Portuguese as well. Yeah. So yeah. I, I also appreciate that. It's not only Anglo-centric. So I guess like that progressive slant kind of runs through things a little bit more. And they also have a really clear code of conduct. Which is a thing that I just was like really excited about. <laughs> pew pew pew! 
Yeah, I mean, like, it's such a nerd where I'm like, oh, I do love their code of conduct. But it matters because they are very much, we are determined to make this space safe. And they say, like, everyone has to read and agree to the code of conduct. And what I liked in the code of conduct is that it says that people who are from organizations where there has been sexual harassment from the leadership are not allowed to speak in a way that represents that organization. Like, you are still allowed to attend if you were not one of those people. They're not trying to, like, punish people who are victims but they're not having those organizations have a platform when they've got that history and i think that's really good because they're not just saying what you do at this conference matters like if you're abusive if you're harassing people you'll be kicked out of the conference which they say it's saying like if you do that in our movement then you're not welcome in this space what happens in other people's organizations has consequences everywhere and i think that's really important yeah they also have a very clear protocol on how to go about whenever they receive a complaint and uh, like a code of ethics um, acknowledging that what if somebody who's in the committee themselves are are you know accused of bad behavior and they have a protocol for that and um, makes me feel like some like it's an event that I would like to attend at some point yeah I mean I don't think that they are the perfect event you know free of all issues but obviously yeah i still feel like it felt like a safe like i said like a safe space a queer friendly space people could be more themselves there oh yeah and the other thing that was interesting which makes talking about one on a podcast potentially just like a little bit difficult is um they said the whole conference is under chatham house rules which what's that ruth uh, um i was going to explain (laughs) the chatham house rules is when you're allowed to quote people and report on what was said but you can't name who said it um, which allows people to speak from their own perspectives without being identified to organizations so basically you can say hey this idea came up at the internet freedom festival but you cannot give any other identifying information like what session or who said it yeah i mean i hope i can say which session because i want to talk about the sessions i went to it makes it a little bit tricky when sometimes the presenter said something the presenter was listed in the program so i feel like you have to be able to talk about things because they're literally in the program with their name there and some of them are quite famous people who have documentaries about their work so you'd feel like they'd be okay with that but I think it's more talking about things in more private sessions and also like what comments and questions people had but all the same I am going to try and talk about it whilst not naming people because a lot of the sessions genuinely were being led by people whose lives are at risk in the work that they do. Wow that's pretty intense. So tell me a little bit about the sessions. What did you attend? I'm trying to think about where to start. So you wake up in the morning and then you look at your schedule and it says day one. Day one. Well, the first session I went to was um, on communicating the importance of privacy, mm-hmm. which was interesting because one of the things that started, it, that there was like the starting sentence in that session was about how we get normal people to understand privacy. And I thought of you the moment someone used the phrase normal people. Normal people. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, ah, I did a little wince. I was like, oh, if Marinella were here. Because I know how painful it is. The question is, who is a normal person? Like, why do we not get to be normal people? White, middle class, straight, cis. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, like, who even is that? I feel like the the actual category of people that are classed as normal people is much smaller than people think. Oh, yeah. But it was funny that the second after they said that, they then did this thing of using personas with like 
little cards with a picture of someone and some information about them and very like personal stuff about like here's a journalist or like my favorite one was here's a truck driver who secretly writes fan fiction but doesn't want their truck driving buddies to know about it and then it was like don't be mean yeah yeah, I was like, I'm, I was rooting for that imaginary truck driver. And then we had <laughs> to um, get in small groups and talk about how we'd tell that person about privacy. And I had a, I had a realization in that. That it felt really easy, or at least like kind of obvious. Like each person that was in their list, there was an obvious way to talk to them about privacy. Hey, okay, you have this thing you want to keep secret. Like you, so you understand privacy, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think that means you can make people care about surveillance. Which huh. is... They said, like, how do we communicate the importance of privacy? But I think what they really meant was, how do you communicate the importance of privacy against the government? Because you can right. get people to understand privacy against threats that are close to them. But, like, when things are really big, they're harder to understand. I was thinking, like, maybe trying to grasp the scale or power of the government is sometimes, like, trying to understand, like, how much a billion pounds is. Yeah, where a lot of these examples sort of like what you mentioned, like truck driver doesn't want others to know about this personal thing. Or were there any other scenarios, like for example, to take it to the truck driver realm again? In the US, there is a small but quite powerful movement of truck drivers and people who work in the transportation industry who are really campaigning against like GPS tracking and surveillance from their employers so it's not even from government it's from like the people in power that obviously hold you know a key to their livelihoods and they are really campaigning against being recorded at all times be it by cameras or by gps trackers or by any like there's a ton of data that these trucks are gathering from them and one not the only but one of the main complaints is that all of this data is being analyzed without even consulting truck drivers. So they're just like, hey, when I need a break, I need a break. Like, this might look bad in your data, but you have not consulted me or any truck driver to analyze this thing. Like, what would make sense on paper doesn't make sense in practice. And they are being pushed to, like, uh, adopt really unsafe practices, you know, driving forever, driving through rush hour, because that's what the GPS tracker demanded them to do, or... So anyways, you know, it's, it's it gets a little bit more complex and complicated, or a different kind of complexity than just, like, I don't want you to find out about me writing slash fiction. Yeah, I was grinning as you were saying all that, because I was like, yes, uh, someone did bring it up. It was a little bit on the persona where it said they didn't want their boss to know about them taking breaks. But someone else in the session like shared that same stuff. Like They talked about how truckers are being monitored a lot with all this like new GPS tracking data. So it was really interesting that you brought that up. They also, like, there was someone who didn't want their parents to know that they were trying to, like, learn about sex on the internet. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I can't remember what the others were. But, yeah, I thought it was interesting, like, one of the other things that we ended up talking about was how we take, like, solo risks. That, like, a lot of the time, like, we're more willing to, like, make a risk for ourselves. Like, we say, I'll accept that, like, I might be found out doing this thing. My parents might, like, see my emails or whatever. But how do we think about taking risks for other people? 
there are times when the risks that we take for our privacy affect the people around us and we don't even realize that when we're sharing data about our friends and our family and then how how do you deal with that kind of aspect about privacy so that was interesting who was it was it EFF who had a campaign or a blog post saying that privacy is a team sport so like just because you don't care much about something if you're tagging your friend and your friend is you know in the closet because it's unsafe for uh, their family to know about their queerness then you're really putting someone else at risk even if you're like the most out flamboyant or butchest person ever yeah i think it's same i actually love that because it's the thing that i've always wanted to do and it's just like one of my little my little things is like trying to work towards more like empathy based campaigning and that i love it when they talk about privacy as a team sport because life is a team sport she says like it could be on a poster but like so many of the choices that we make we have to make choices that are about looking out for people around us not just for ourselves and that like when we try and talk about this like how do you talk to this person about privacy like you can talk to that person about that specific thing that's impacting them but it has to also include thinking about the other people that they affect because if that person says okay well I'm going to do this thing for myself and I'm going to disregard it because I'm willing to take this risk who else is being impacted by the risks that we take I think is something that we should be thinking about more yeah how to make people care about others that's like the question of the century um, I have another question though I mean this this festival was in Spain um, people from all over the world came here or came to the festival was it fairly Eurocentric in ter terms of themes or did you get to um, learn about uh, internet issues in other countries especially I mean I'm interested Latin America Global South Middle East I mean everyone has a different conference based on the sessions they go to so I can only talk about what I did I definitely went to less Eurocentric than I probably normally do I felt like a lot of the sessions were things that I've attended at past conferences, so I really wanted to try and educate myself more about things that I don't directly work in. I often just go to sessions that are to do with my work, but because I was going there as a holiday, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try and push myself to learn about other things. So I went to a session about Pakistani digital rights issues and um, issues with citizen journalists being kidnapped. I went to a session about Palestine. I went to something about Bangladeshi digital rights. I went to two different sessions which were about America. One was about like NYPD surveillance of communities in Harlem. And then the other one was about kind of CIA entrapment of New York communities, but Muslim communities. So they're both pretty serious. I did find it quite interesting, strange that there were so many connections between the sessions that I went to in Palestine and the sessions about New York surveillance. How so? Well, there were a lot of different threads that I could pull out. Like the the one that really stood out to me actually was linking back to this conversation about queer surveillance was how the CIA try and find out when Muslims are gay, queer, and then approach them and essentially blackmail them into being informants against their own communities by saying we will tell your parents and your family that you're gay if you don't inform for us and in the palestine session completely different speaker you know so this this thing that you mentioned uh, the cia were targeting queer muslims in the u.s or abroad or oh, sorry it was in it was in new york specifically in new york um 
I mean, I'm sure they do it in other parts of America, but the two speakers were talking about um, communities in New York under surveillance. So yeah, they, I mean, that was really shocking. And then, yeah, in the Palestine session I went to, they talked about the same thing, how Israeli soldiers finding out that people are gay and threatening them to spy on their communities, to spy on Palestinians, or have that revealed to their families. And it was just one of those things where it's like, you know, it's different governments, same tactics. And it's like weaponizing homophobia, like directly using the communities that they're targeting, using the homophobia from those communities against their own people in order to surveil them and in order to find out more about and entrap them, essentially. It's just pretty fucked up. Yeah, the enemy will use the taboo. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, homosexuality and queerness is still a taboo in a lot of places, most of the world, I would say. A lot of places. Anyways, yeah. I mean, the whole session that was about surveillance of Muslims in the US was really horrible. And especially because the fact of it is, is it's kind of my country's fault. A whole bunch of stuff that they were talking about, they were like, yep, they got it from the UK. They got it from Prevent Scheme, which I've mentioned, I think, Mm. before. You know, which is this whole thing about how you have to watch Muslims if they do anything suspicious, where being suspicious is doing things that are just being Muslim. Basically, yeah, existing, right? Yeah, yeah. If you pray, you're suspicious. Yeah, if you wear traditional clothes, if you give up smoking, if and especially if you get involved in social activism, if you get mm-hmm. interested in politics. That actually, that whole thing about if you get interested in politics, like one thing that really stood out for me was they shared a story about how someone joined the Student Muslim Association at this university they were attending and was there for four years befriending people in that student association and then ended up handing over to some people in that group the instructions on how to make a bomb. And then those people that they gave the instructions to were arrested. What? There's a whole, they were saying there's a whole documentary about this. You know, it's like a setup. It was like, yeah, I mean, it's it's entrapment. Like this whole thing is that they literally like, they have this policy called create and capture. You know, it's they create mm. the discourse around terrorism and then capture people. And then she said that what happened as a result is that in New York, student Muslim associations put up signs saying no politics allowed. No. And the, the end result, obviously it's awful for those people, but like, the broader impact is just depoliticizing a complete group of young people. Yeah, well, which is a systemic disempowering of, of a group of people that's already oppressed and marginalized in, in that context, right? And like being Muslim in, in America is not, you know, a position of privilege. It makes me really think like when they're trying to create these scenarios, like how much of their conversations about terrorism are just created by the people who are trying to ostensibly fight them by saying that they like, um, they force people to come in four months, they join associations, they get into mosques, they infiltrate spaces, and then try and create these conversations. It's like, wait, are you even causing this problem? Mm. <sighs> wow, that's that's so fucked up, and it's sadly not surprising. So, was there any discussion on how these practices further affect or fragment communities and community spaces and any notion of resistance from like activist communities to I mean to resist these terrible practices it wasn't all it wasn't all negative especially in that session on surveillance of Muslims in New York like they talked about a lot of different projects that are about accountability to like NYPD about like anti-prevent strategies for instance like in the UK on anti-prevent strategies there's a whole campaign that's like educating as not informants about lecturers mm. and teachers who like refuse to comply with the prevent scheme similarly like 
uh, supposedly our health system is supposed to report people and like doctors are saying like refuse to comply then the people giving the session also discussed how they do like rapid response academic work in terms of when there are terrorist situations or when people are put on trial they do a lot of research and find data and then there's also ways in which they and they do things like have vigils outside police stations for the people who've been arrested and also how they create safe spaces for themselves in order to like do self-care how like having safe space especially for muslim women having these communities has been like really powerful to like look after themselves in these situations there was two women who were doing this session they were really powerful speakers absolutely amazing they're talking about obviously a really horrible situation like they're talking about islamophobia in america and in the uk but i think they still were very much like we're we're gonna fucking fight this um and they were definitely quite inspiring that's so awesome um, do 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 segue. Can I just drink some wine? I need to drink some wine. This episode is brought to you by wine. Making Ruth say ah. <sighs> and now back to serious podcasting. When we're talking about activist communities themselves, the people who are doing the work to affect change, what was the conversation about? the self the meta-analyzing of the community because we're not perfect yeah i mean there was two very powerful sessions that i went to which were about honestly responding to some huge cases of sexual harassment in the internet freedom movement as jacob applebaum and ali karimzada and morgan three men that had a lot of power and fame within the world in which we're part of and you know, it was revealed, announced, shared that they'd been serially sexually harassing people at these kind of conferences. And that's kind of like the fact that it happened at these spaces was why the code of conduct, I think, is like so clear and so forceful about who is allowed to participate. And I went to this session that started off talking about this concept of missing stairs which even though I do a lot of reading about consent, I actually hadn't come across this exact phrase before. So they were saying that missing stairs are like, imagine that you have a basement with stairs to go down it and one of the stairs is missing, but you, you're just used to that. So you always take that one two steps and jump over it. And other people, you know, you come to your house and you say, hey, just jump over the missing stair. And, and everyone's kind of accepting that. And then someone comes and they fall through the stair because you didn't let them know about it. And then they just say like, well, why did you never fix the stair? And they were talking about how there are organizations in the movement that are serially abusive and essentially function as those missing stairs. So we started off talking about how do we respond to those? How do we warn people as a community? And like, they're talking about the fact like Jacob Applebaum was prominent speaker, gave keynotes, worked at Tor. Um, that's the Onion Rings. That's the site that provides a secure browser and did all of this stuff. And apparently it was an open secret that he was mm. sexually abusive towards people. Um, it often is. Yeah. I mean, if, we, if we've seen anything from the Me Too movement is that it is rarely a secret that someone's abusive. Yeah. I find this phrase like open secret a little bit upsetting, I realized, mm. because it implies that it was open. And I think how many people didn't know, though, like how many people were not safe as a result, which I think is the point with the missing stairs. Like I was thinking like, 
who knew and then just kept it quiet, you know? Is there a, is there a notion that if you speak up, you will bring down the movement? So you better, like, take one or two or three for the team. And usually the people taking it from the team are the people who are being abused. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, and I think it's not just true in our space, in, like, the internet freedom movement. I think it's true in a lot of activist spaces in general. Or whenever people have, like, a strong sense of community, that there can be a risk that you then feel like the group is so important that you don't mind letting a few people be sacrificed, mm. like, for this, like, good of the group. Or especially when they're a hero and they're someone really important and, you know, well, we need them. Right. I mean, this is not a sustainable situation, right? Like, it is It is just not... You cannot sustain a mov- movement if you're constantly silencing anyone who's pointing out issues within it, especially hardcore issues like harassment, sexual harassment or otherwise. Yeah, bullying. yeah. They talked about how um, bad doesn't always mean criminal, that there are Mm. lots of other kind of problems. And in fact, like this concept of like doing good work, which we said is bad when it's put as like the hero, you know, also the harasser does good work. And so they should be let off. But therefore, like if you have a place that looks at anything and says like you're doing good work or they do good work. And so X bad thing is okay, That's a real big warning sign. Like, Mm. they were saying, like, that's a place where a culture of abuse can grow, even if it isn't there yet. Those are, like, the warning signs to be careful of. Well, there's there's that notion of if you create, say, a rock star who does really great work, then becomes, or it's found out to be an abuser, it is also, like, a false single point of accountability. Like, when something goes wrong in the organization or in the movement, um, it... I think getting rid of that person gives a false impression that the problem is solved. And if we don't look at all of the elements that have to come together for that person to be able to harass, you know, like the networks of silence and all the enablers and, you know, the culture around it. Um, I think the culture of overwork, of like produce, 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 bully if you need to. Yeah. You know, there's, there's just this whole setting. Like it's... Rarely, I think creating a rock star allows you to also say like, oh, if we get rid of this one person, then everything is solved. I'm like, no, this was a systemic thing and it manifested strongly in this one point. But like, yeah, one of the um, the stories is about ASL 19, who are a Toronto based digital rights organization and their co-director has been arrested for sexual abuse and well, sexual assault, actually. They the ex members of staff at the organization have recently done this big open letter where they're calling for changes and like he's gone but they're saying it's not good enough like it's not enough to just say like well he's left so now we'll just carry on they're saying like a lot of the problems happened because of management because people covered things up and they they starting to like really call for some serious changes to say like we want funders to be reviewing HR policies of organizations we want real investigations into like inappropriate workplace behavior I mean like a lot of the things that I found really really fascinating listening to people talk in this session was how much people felt like funders should play a huge role in fighting like sexual harassment and bullying which I never thought about before like I always feel like funders are somehow outside of the organization and it's like management board that deal with these things but a lot of people felt like if the funders who in a way have the most power like they decide what gets funding therefore what gets done start to really like say 
we won't fund organizations unless they have, you know, appropriate continuous methods to expand diversity, you know, unless they have mechanisms to make a safe work environment. They were saying, like, this would lead to change. And I just thought it was really interesting because, like, I never thought before about them having a responsibility towards workplace culture. I'd always thought about them as simply being, like, you know, well, responsibility towards the project that they're funding. But right. not this idea that that responsibility extends to the care of staff. So it's really interesting. Yeah, what what do you think of that? Reminds me a little bit of what happened. Was it at the Oscars um, when this actor person i think she's a woman made like a call for every like superstar to include like an inclusivity writer which means like your contract like you won't take the job unless you know you meet certain requirements and that required like those requirements were like aiming to make the workplace a lot more inclusive like not only in terms of characters but also of like who's working on staff who you know who's who's who has lines on screen you know all of those things but it's like it was this condition like acknowledging that they have power as a, a, a superstar so not every actor can demand all of this quote unquote but like what this person was saying is like you know i have some say and this is my demand like sometimes i demand vegan food or in 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 my in the set sometimes i demand five assistants i also demand like an inclusive workplace and that means the following right and just the demands there it reminds me of that the second thing is i am not quite sure about how effective it is to demand funders to do this job this is also work and i think to outsource the responsibility of caring for teams and caring for community to just the people giving us money it's it's interesting i, I think definitely funders could have a say in there but i i think it's um it is not the it should not be the only or the strongest solution to the problem and I say this because I've seen boards and funders really wanting to operate at, at an arm's length, right? Of saying like, hey, I'm giving you money for this. You fix it. Like you go and like, I'm funding you, but you're independent. And trying to respect that line of autonomy for some reason is really important to funders. I don't know what their motivations then are for funding something like a project or someone like an organization or a person but i do find that this is not uncommon that they want to keep some distance so to try to outsource the responsibility of caring for the community to the person in power i.e the person with money it feels a little bit of a like a hopeful like wishful thinking but definitely something to consider because i also have not thought about that yeah yeah one of the other things they were talking about is having like a whole community task force like some kind of collective that people could come to with their stories. I mean, I guess, like, in part, like a whistleblowing repository, in part a place to, like, relay messages between people in power so you could have someone like survivors and the board and these this organization, this group, could, like, speak in between them. And there was, like, a lot of discussion about how that would work and what they would do and how would they would have credibility. And I, I thought it was, again, like, really interesting. I'm intrigued to see where it goes. I was a little bit nervous about like how that works across borders, especially when so many organizations are international. Like, how big does that need to be? So yeah, that was interesting. Do you know the funny thing is, right? The best conversation that I had about all of this stuff wasn't in either of the sessions I went to on it. It was in the <laughs> pub, naturally, all right? At the end of the day, chatting with someone about LARPing. 
Yep. What is LARPing, Ruth? Uh, live action role playing. It's not something I've done, but I have played Dungeons and Dragons, so I can relate. But the person I was talking to was talking about how the LARPing community is like way ahead of us on all of this stuff. <laughs> they were like, LARPing community dealt with sexual harassment. Well, not like it's not over, but like had their moment where they like had to respond to like serial sexual harassers in their community and like deal with it a few years ago. And have like already made like a whole bunch of policies around how to respond. How you have like because it's a very physically intense thing. Like you often you know you're pretending to be different characters, and sometimes people can say like, "Oh, I'm not hitting on you inappropriately. My character is." And often you know you're physically fighting, which is very. Mm. Um, what's the word like it's risky yeah it's physical like if you are fighting it's physical and that can make people uncomfortable depending on where it goes and so she Mm -hmm. was talking about how they make really clear rules with everyone says at the start of a scene where they say like what I'm comfortable doing and what I'm not actually kind of like in kink communities yes yep you say like you know if you even don't want to do any fighting at all you just want to do like verbal role play or you say like my character is happy to flirt but like i'm not role playing anything beyond that mm-hmm. and also saying how they also provide lists of everyone who's attending a larping event in advance so you can see if there's someone that you're not comfortable being there with and you can just say like i don't do like any laughing with this person and that's okay I mean, I've not done it, so really want to ask someone who has for more experience Mm -hmm. on that. And I really want to read more about it because it just reminded me, like, you know, we've just had this moment within this community, several big stories. A lot of people are like, we have to do something about it, which we should. But we don't have to try and reinvent the wheel necessarily. You know, we don't have to come up with, like, our own internet freedom, unique response to sexual harassment. Like, other people are working on this. Like, other people have found ways to respond. So we need to be talking beyond our community. Yeah, a few things, like, it reminds me of, because I've I've also been thinking what other communities have had to deal with uh, collective evil, I guess. I mean, the labor movement and the women's movement intersection with the labor movement, it's like... source that we should be looking at in terms of like collective organizing queer movements as well but it's interesting how i was listening to the outrage episode spoiler that we recorded and this whole idea like the king community kind of keeps coming up because it's it's fascinating and and i think it makes sense also in terms of like role-playing and games and creating a setting where like rules are needed and they need to be explicit negotiated and where aftercare it's part of the whole thing. It's like, I think we should be looking at communities where like intent is very obvious and where the risks are just stated. I think in activist communities, it's almost taboo to talk about the risks that we might run into as social beings. Like there might be bullying in the workplace. Like we're not saints. Yeah. And being activist doesn't really make us better at working at an office or working remotely or work you know so i don't know why it's um i think we need to practice a little bit more of like acknowledging risks and having very open conversations with, which can be hard about how to care for those yeah risks it's funny my my husband uh runs a dungeons and dragons club in london and one of the things that he does, which, you know, we learnt from other 
people who play this game, but now he tries to do it all the time, is when you're playing with new players, you ask them at the start to just write down on a piece of paper if there's anything they're not comfortable with um, role-playing or happening in the game. So you just, if someone has certain things that trigger them, you just say like, I don't want to see this happen in the game. Like for instance, I, I cannot play games where like there's any pretense of torture. So uh, that's a personal thing. And other people might have different things. They're not always necessarily obvious. They can be quite personal things and someone can just look look at that list at the start and be like, okay, I'll make sure none of these things happen in this game. It actually doesn't have to be really uncomfortable at all. Like, I don't think, I, I mean, I'm not there, but like, I don't think he even uses the word triggers. He just says, is there anything you don't feel happy role-playing or don't want to see in the game? It's just a simple way of setting boundaries and making people feel more comfortable. And I know he said, like, people come up afterwards and say, like, I really liked that you did that. It made me feel like I was more present and could just relax because I knew nothing was going to happen along those lines. And that's the cool thing about it right like setting boundaries being aware of potential risks and stuff ultimately makes the environment better and healthier yeah i don't know it's a win-win like everything if it's a taboo if um if we cannot do anything wrong as activists then that's the first hurdle to overcome anything else Oh yeah, I went to a session on feminist infrastructure of the internet, or building a feminist what? building a feminist infrastructure of the internet. It was mostly in Spanish though, so they did they did like translate what people said. Mm. I've noticed. Um, I don't know what your perspective is on this, but like I've noticed that there's a lot of feminist energy in the internet and the digital rights movement in Latin America and I assume in Spain too I find a lot of information most of my information on feminist internet and feminist dig digital rights is in Spanish yeah. sometimes even in Portuguese and um, there's been like wonderful reports if people read uh, Spanish and I think they might be translated in English uh, I think Derechos Digitales and Red or R3D, however you call it, um, in Mexico. Derechos is, I think, based in Chile, but they're like Latin American, so all over the place. And a bunch of other organizations like recently put together a report on the state of women on the internet in Latin America, like gender-focused analysis of the internet. I, uh, and that's just one example. That's the most recent example that I know of. But I see this, like the International Women's Day just passed when we're recording this, and the amount of noise that I heard from Latin America doesn't even begin to compare to how little noise um, I heard in, in the Anglo communities. And most of my uh, media consumption now, it's, it's in English. It's, it's, and, and I work, and I work in, in the movement. So it's like, where are we, Anglo people, what, what are we doing, right? Why aren't we making noise about that? What do, you, what do you think? I know, no, I think you're spot on. Like, I thought it was really interesting. The session said, building a feminist infrastructure. The speakers were, as you say, like Costa Rica, Spain, Portugal, Chile, Brazil was also there. All from these different organizations. And yeah, like Spanish-speaking, Portuguese-speaking places. I was thinking the same thing, like, come on, where's the Berlin? Because like Berlin mm. has like a huge hacker space. Um, like, as in, like, and I think simultaneously to IFF, there was something really cool happening with building a feminist in infrastructure in Berlin, and it was like a Berlin Mexico oh. thing. Fair enough, because I was just really confused because I was like, I know that Berlin has like huge hacker communities, so it seems kind of weird that there was no one like 
repping Berlin in this session. But mm-hmm. fair enough if they were doing their own thing. Yeah. They were talking about like doing all of their work with like a feminist ideology in the way that they mm. work and sharing responsibility, denying the structures of the patriarchy in the way that they work. So all of that stuff was really interesting. I feel like I don't fully understand still what everyone means by a feminist infrastructure. So I feel like I still have a lot more to try and like understand about what that movement is. We should interview some people and have a, an episode on that. Yeah, I'd really like that. Well, this sounds like a really good trip. Where can people find out more? Well, you could go to the Internet Freedom Festival website. Which is gorgeous. Yeah, they have pretty artwork. It's just internetfreedomfestival.org. Perfect. Yeah, I encourage people to look up the speakers, check out the themes. I'm sure a bunch of people are writing on whatever they presented, so just check them out. And thank you, Ruth, for sharing the cliff notes. Wait, is cliff notes a copyrighted term? The summary notes. I feel like this is, you know, legal remixing of the term. Okay, excellent. So anyways, thank you for sharing all of your notes. Um, I'm really glad that you had a really good time, and I'm really glad that I'm having a really good time like second hand yeah it was really nice to talk it back through and like process everything that i learned because it was quite intense you know shout out to all of the people who are listening to this because you met ruth at the festival hello welcome yeah thanks thanks for talking to me i appreciate it cool well as we usually do ruth do you have anything that you're taking with you from this conversation in particular Ooh. Um, I can start. I was really surprised or I was really happy to learn the whole concept of the missing step. It banks on how resilient communities are to overcome obstacles, but how easy it is to turn that resilience into bad practice. I think it's a really good concept. I, I love it. And it's a starting point to start thinking about other things like actual systemic changes, accountability, and well, maybe just looking at ourselves as a community a little bit more honestly. What about yourself? Actually, you know what? It was that thing you said about truckers organizing to campaign against GPS, tracking and against surveillance. Because in the session we talked about it, the guy who mentioned that uh, issue of surveillance didn't tell us that there was a campaign about it. He didn't tell us that like truckers themselves were organizing. And it reminds me of what you said. Last time we talked, we were talking about, in our outreach session, about how there are always people fighting when you don't, even if you don't think so, like even if you don't see them. You know, I don't know anything about that. And it's just like, every time there's an issue, if you just look hard enough, like people are organizing who are impacted and that there's no group of people that you can just assume are unpolitical. People like go, oh, like art oh, truckers in America, like, oh, I'm sure they're just, you know, just doing their job. But like, no, everyone can be political and is organizing and is doing really interesting important stuff and i just think that's a really like useful thing to try and remember all the time like not to patronize or assume that nothing's happening wherever these issues are present yeah i'm pretty certain there is a segment from uh, john oliver that looks at this i'll try to find it put it in the in the footnotes it's a fascinating look into into this movement and they put questions like hey we're on the road sometimes we're on the road with our families what does it mean to have our family recorded 24 7 because they're in the cabin with me driving so yeah definitely go check that out and well thank you ruth for having this conversation with me thank you it's always a pleasure spending my sunday evenings with you same Bye! Bye!
Thank you for listening to The Intersection of Things. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at Things Intersect or find us online at www.theintersectionofthings.com, which is all one word. I'm Ruth Kustik Deal and you can find me on Twitter at Nessient, N-E-S-I-E-N-T, or on Medium, writing about all the things at medium.com slash at Ruth Kustik Deal. And I'm Marina Len. You can find me on Twitter at Undaced and Such. Until next time. Bye. Bye.